um, what we do is we rotate the speakers on different weeks. Trudy shared last week. I'll share this time, and you'll get the chance to, to meet lots of us. And so um, we're just going to dive right in and see what the Lord has for us. So please bow your heads with me as we open with the word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we just come to you in Jesus' name, and we're so th- Grateful, Lord, for the opportunity to be here tonight, Lord, to fellowship with our sisters in Christ and to sit at your feet, Lord, and and to hear from you. And so I ask now that you would open our hearts and you would prepare us, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would have free reign to to bring life, breathe life into your word this evening, Lord, because our desire more than anything is that song said, Lord, is just um, just to have you, Lord, in our lives, have that relationship with you. And so we ask God that you would just go before us now as we open your word and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. And so um, here we are tonight talking about Eve. I feel so privileged to be able to, to kick this off. Trudy did the introduction last week, and um, so I get to kind of start us off here. And um, of course, where else are we going to start but with Eve, right? Um, I'd like to read a verse for, um, to you from the book of James, from James chapter 1, verses 12 through 15 say, Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin and sin when it's full grown brings forth death. And as hard as we might try, it's impossible for us to imagine a world without sin. Just because our our tainted minds, our sinful minds aren't able to understand that. For us to understand what the world was like before the fall. The world that that Eve used to live in. But I was thinking about it. And once you think about a typical day in your life. And try to imagine what that would be like if there were no sin. So for example, there would be no sickness. Those of us who have sniffles, coughs and colds. People we know who have serious diseases such as cancer, aches and pains. None of that would be here. There would be total harmony. There would be no strife between your children, between you and your spouse, between um, your co-workers, between bosses and employers. There would be no jealousies. There would be no weeds in the garden, right? For those of us who like to work outside, I thought about that. I go, man, that would, be, that would be nice, huh? There would be constant uninterrupted fellowship with God, the best thing. We would have that constant uninterrupted fellowship with him. And it would be at a level that we can't even imagine or begin to um, approach now just because of our sin nature. Because even on a good day, we are just our sin nature constantly gets, gets in the way. So we can only imagine it. But think about it. Because Eve actually lived in that world, right? And the scripture doesn't tell us how long it was. How long Adam and Eve lived in that perfect paradise before the serpent came along. It might have been a few days, maybe a few months. And I suppose it could have even been years. But I really doubt that Satan waited that long. And it doesn't take very long once the sin enters in, though, because everything changes immediately. And for those of you who've been around for a while, then if you lived a few years on the earth, I'm sure you're going to agree with me that the pace of this change that, that Eve brought on, that pace of this downward spiral that she set in motion through her temptation, the pace has just been picking up over the years. And I don't know about you, but it seems to me like the brakes have gone out and that humanity is like on this, this you know, crash course, you know, about to hit this wall, almost to a point of self-destruction. At least that's kind of how I see it and feel it. But it's interesting because I look around me and some people are oblivious to this peril. You know, some people are just living. It's kind of like the days of Noah where it said people were just, you know, eating and drinking and giving in marriage and stuff. And at any moment there was going to be this judgment. And that's how I feel sometimes. And the scripture tells us um, 
that pe- that's how people were living at that time. And we have that saying that ignorance is bliss. And I think sometimes people don't know what they don't know. And so we can look around and see the condition of the world, but some people are just clueless as to what's really going on. And so tonight what we're going to do is look at how this whole mess that we're in now, how it first began. And the title of our study is Eve, the woman who yielded to temptation. And what we're going to learn about Eve tonight is going to impact all the other women that we study. Because some of the women that we're going to be studying here through the Old Testament, some of them we should seek to emulate. That is, they have real positive things in their lives. And other ones, though, are going to be those examples for us to avoid. And because somewhere along the line, they, d- they did something like Eve did. That is, they gave into some kind of a temptation, and as a result, their lives end up being a tale of tragedy instead of that, that example for us to follow. And all the following women that we study are going to have some connection, as I said, to our study of Eve. It's kind of like at school. I'm a teacher. I teach fifth grade. And, and especially, for example, in a subject like math, the concepts build one upon the other. And so we're laying the foundation tonight with this study of, of Eve, and we're going to be able to tap back into it throughout the year here. And so it made me think about a couple of questions here that we could ask ourselves as we get ready to start. One of them is, what type of a woman do I want to be? Do I want to follow Eve's example? and lean on my own understanding, or do I want to follow God's way and experience all the blessings that come as a result of walking in obedience to him? And what type of legacy legacy do I want to leave? That is, what am I going to be remembered for? Because if you think about it, what do we associate Eve with? Temptation and sin. You know, I also get to choose the legacy, right, that's going to be here one day, what's going to be connected to my name. And each woman that we study is going to give us an opportunity to build upon that legacy that we want to leave in our relationship with God. And sometimes um, the best examples are what we call non-examples. That is, we learn what we should do by seeing like what we shouldn't do. And Eve is the classic non-example. <laughs> okay, so we can look at her tonight, not in the, the idea of emulating her, but in seeing what we should not be doing. And there's a lot of different ways to approach our text tonight. And so we're going to make three main points as we go through it. First of all, we're going to look at Eve's purpose in creation. We'll look at her purpose in creation, what God um, created her for. Then we'll look at Eve's deception by Satan. That is what Satan did and and how he did it. So God's purpose or Eve's purpose in creation, Eve's deception. And then also we'll look at the consequences at the end that came as a result of that. So just as we say that Adam's the head of the human race, we can also say that Eve is is the mother. And that makes all of us her daughters. And we know that saying that the fruit doesn't fall far from the branch, right? So we're all Eve's daughters, and there's a lot of Eve in all of us here. And so what we need to do tonight as we look at the scriptures is we need to open our hearts and see what it is that the Lord wants to teach each of us concerning um, the the life of Eve here. And so we're going to start off with Eve's purpose in creation. And Trudy touched on this a little bit last week. And I don't know about you, but I'm really used to making things work. For example, at school the other day, I needed to draw a straight line, didn't have a ruler, grabbed an index card, used the edge of the index card, drew a straight line. Had to move um, the security sign in front of my house to, like, clip some weeds. Couldn't jam it back in the lawn. I was too lazy to walk out onto the back porch to get a hammer. So in the tool drawer in the kitchen, I have, like, this screwdriver with a big handle. So we got that and pounded it in. And these um, improvisations, they all work, but they're not ideal. And have you ever done that? I know you've all done that. But have you ever, like, used something for what it's not supposed to be used for, and then it broke, and then you got mad? Because... <laughs> Because you're like, oh, how cheap this is, right? But we were using it for a reason that it was not intended to, right? It was not designed like that. The, the inventor or the designer didn't create it like that. And we have to remember that God is very, very purposeful 
in all that he does. He's not haphazard. He doesn't make it up as he go, as he goes, or as we say, he doesn't fly by the seat of his pants. He doesn't use trial and error. Imagine if he did. It's like, ooh, that neck is way too long on that giraffe. <laughs> it's like, better make a note to myself, you know. God doesn't do that. It's not like trial and error. But everything that God does, everything that he does, he does with a purpose. He does it perfectly. And he, all, he does it all as part of a bigger plan. He does it all as part of a bigger plan. It's his perfect will. And so when he created Eve, he did it for a specific reason, for a specific plan. And one of the purposes that he created Eve for was to reflect the image of God. That's one of the reasons that she was created. Now, both Adam and Eve were created in God's image. And the physical creation of Adam and Eve are described in, in Genesis chapter 2 there. And first and foremost, we have to remember as we talk about creation, we, that when we talk about creation, man's listed there in all the creation with the animals. But man's not related to the animals. He's related first and foremost to God. Because we have a moral and we have moral and spiritual capabilities, we have emotions, we have intellect, we have a free will, we have a conscience, and all of those point us to and connect us with God. And so Adam and Eve, they were able at that point in the garden, they could reflect all of who God was at that point. They could do it perfectly. But after the fall and after sin tarnished their lives, it tarnished their ability to reflect who God was, to reflect that image of God. But when, as Christians, when we're born again and when we give our lives to Christ and then when we have the Spirit of God indwelling in us, once again, we are able and empowered to reflect that image of God. And as Second Peter, um, in Second Peter chapter 1, in, in verse 4, he writes that we've been given these exceedingly great and precious promises that through these promises we might be partakers of God's divine nature. So we are able as believers to reflect that image of God, but it won't be as perfectly as Adam and Eve were once able to do that. So one of the purposes of the creation was for Eve and Adam then to reflect um, God's image. Another purpose behind her creation was for her to be that helper or that companion for Adam. And again, Trudy touched on that a bit last week. Now, when we read in Genesis chapter 1, in, at the end of the creation there in verses 26 through 31, we read, we read about the creation of, of the man and the woman. And we see how God gives man a dominion over the creation, how he commands him to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth, and to subdue it and everything like that. But then in chapter 2 of Genesis, we actually get the details of God's creation, right? And in Genesis chapter 2, in verse 7, it reads, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living being. So man's creation was distinct and it was separate from the animal's creation, even though he was also made of the dust of the ground, just as the animals were. And since God made Adam, he created him, he knew that by himself, that Adam would not be able to fulfill all of those things that God had desired for him. As God had mentioned, to have dominion over the earth, to multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it. Adam wasn't able to do that by himself. And you notice that Adam wasn't asking for a companion, he wasn't complaining. But it's interesting, God is the one who initiated the creation of Eve because he knew He knew what Adam needed. God was the one who said, it's not good that a man should be alone. Okay, it wasn't Adam who initiated that, but God saw the need inside of Adam. And so then in chapter 2, after naming all the animals, at that point, Adam probably began to realize that something wasn't quite right. And it says that for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. And comparable would mean corresponding to him. And so all that Adam's nature needed for its completion, everything he needed physically, everything he needed intellectually, socially, all of those things were found in Eve. 
And so Eve's creation, we have to remember, was distinct from Adam's. He was formed, as I mentioned, from the dust of the ground, the same way that the animals were. And, but Eve's creation was different. God gave, put Adam in that deep sleep, and then um, God, as it, the scripture reads, it took a, one of his ribs out and closed the flesh on that spot. And then God woke Adam up, and he brought the woman to Adam. And she is the last of God's creative works, if you think about it. So I'll go through the seven days, you know, the six days of creation and stuff. She was the last cre- um, thing that God created. And one of the commentators I read said, if man is the head, then woman is the crown. And I thought that's a neat way because she was like that finishing touch on God's creation there. So one of the other purposes of God's creating Eve is for her to be that helper, to be that companion for Adam. Another reason that God created Eve was to establish that family unit, to create that family unit. Now, the woman was everything that Adam needed in order to to be able to complete God's charge to him. Because with Eve by his side, he would be able to do everything that God had wanted for him to be fruitful and multiply, for him to fulfill the earth and to subdue it and to have dominion over everything. So recognizing her special creation, Adam declares, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now, as you go down in Genesis chapter 2 there, we get that verse in verse 24. And that's where, um, these aren't the words of Adam, but it's probably Moses who wrote the book of Genesis inserted this where it says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And so here we see that establishment of, of a family unit. And regardless of what society believes today, um, God is the author of marriage, and he's the one who designed the family to be made of a man and his wife. And earlier I talked about making things work. And a lot of times people try to define the family in all sorts of different ways. But as believers, we need to base, <clears throat> excuse me, we need to base our values and our opinions on what the scriptures say and not on what society teaches us or even what our own minds or, or, or our own hearts say. And so if God's going to be the creator, then he knows what's best for his creation. And so that's the way he set it up. Now, speaking a little bit about creation, just a little side note here. Um, it's just a question for you to think about. Do you really believe the biblical account of creation? Because I know Christians who don't, and I don't know how that works, but if you are a Christian and you entertain other ideas about how we got here, you really need to sit down and do some, some soul search, searching with the Lord because we can't just pick and choose what we believe from the Bible. It is all his inspired word. It's all his inerrant word. And I just want to really encourage those of you who are moms, if you have school-aged children, you need to not only teach them, but you need to equip them. Because our faith is something that's rational. Our faith is something that has evidence. And the Bible isn't just a compilation of a bunch of quaint stories, right, that teach us how to live good moral lives. But it's a lot more than that. And you, may, you don't have to be some, you know, scholar, some Bible answer man expert, but there are resources for example, up in our bookstore, things that, that you can have at hand, things you can share with your children. And you have to be aware, you, we can't just dismiss questions that people have. Sometimes people are non-believers, they have questions about these things. And we can't just say, well, that's what the Bible says, and just totally turn it over on our faith. That's how I believe it. But there are rational explanations. There is evidence for a lot of this. And so I would just encourage you, um, that's just something, it's a conviction that I have, because a lot of times we don't have answers. And people are looking for answers today. And so as believers, especially if, if you still struggle in that area of creation, or is this, did this really happen like this? Yes, it did. <laughs> all right, just be assured. God's word is true, and this is how it happened, all right? And so we see here in the book of Genesis, in the, these first couple chapters, we see how God created Eve, and that he created her with, with a purpose. 
And he made her for specific reasons. And she would find her fullest satisfaction. She would find her fullest joy if she would fulfill those purposes that God had created her for. But unfortunately, we know instead of following God's plan, she came up with one of her own. And so now we're going to kind of look at the deception, that de- how Eve was deceived by Satan. This is the heart of our study tonight. And this is where we're going to spend a little bit more time. And we want to look at the passage here in Genesis chapter 3. And we want to see not only what happened to Eve, but more importantly, we want to see what it is that we can learn from it. And then what we can take and apply to our own lives. So I do want to read um, Genesis chapter 3 verses 1 through 7 where it says, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. Now, there's a lot that the text doesn't say here. For example, it doesn't tell us where Adam was when all this happened. But we're going to focus on, on what the verses do say here. And there are several clear steps that we can see. And it's really important for us to identify exactly what's happening. Because as I said, God is very purposeful, but so is Satan. He has a plan, he has a strategy, and he just worked it to perfection here in the garden. And in Paul writes, the Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 11, he says, we are not ignorant of Satan's devices. And I should say, well, we, we shouldn't be ignorant. We shouldn't be ignorant of what Satan does because we have God's word. We have the examples that are written in the scriptures. And his bag of tricks is not endless. He uses the same tricks over and over and over again. The same things he used back in the garden, he uses them on you and me. And so we're going to take a look at what happened here with Eve to see what lessons then that we can take from her experience there. So we're going to look at those different steps that were involved in the deception. Here in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1, it says that the the serpent was more cunning. And that word cunning means crafty or subtle, but in a bad sense there. Now we know that God made everything, including the serpent. And when God made everything in chapter 1, his creation, what did he say? It was good. So the serpent was good until Satan got a hold of it, right? And Satan began to use it for his purposes. There's nothing inherently evil in the serpent when it was created there. Now, Satan um, comes from a root word which means to attack or to accuse. And it could be translated adversary or opponent. And we don't find the name Satan here in chapter 3. But the words that are spoken by the serpent are in direct opposition to God's commands. And so we know that Satan is the one who opposes God. And if you have any trouble with the whole idea of a talking serpent, remember how the Lord opened the the mouth of Balaam's jackass, right? And the prophet had this conversation with with the donkey there. And so for us to see Eve, you know, having this conversation with the serpent shouldn't be that, that difficult. And so the serpent comes and he says to the woman, and he speaks to the woman and not to the man. In Peter, Peter refers to the woman or to the wife as the weaker vessel. So we see here that Satan's being very, very strategic. We know that Adam was the head and he had received that command not to eat the tree in the midst of the garden directly from God. When you look at chapter two, when you see those verses where God tells Adam like to stay away from the tree in the middle of the garden, that was before Eve was created. 
And so if we look at, the, the, at that chron chronology there, we could say, well, maybe Eve was created after that. And we know that Adam, of course, would communicate with her, but she may not have heard those words directly from God about, not, about staying away from that tree there. So for whatever reason, Satan felt that she would be an easier target. And so the first step, the first thing that Satan does here is that he sows doubt. He comes to her with a question. Has God indeed said, another way to translate, you could say, did God tell you that you should not eat the fruit of any of the trees of the garden? Or did God really say so? And I thought it was very interesting here that Satan doesn't deny that God spoke. But what's he doing? He's challenging what God said. It's kind of like saying, are you sure? Perhaps you misunderstood. Right? He's not saying God didn't say it. But he's like, is this what God said? Are you sure about that? Also implicit in his question here is that whole idea. He's kind of questioning God's goodness. Like, if God really loved you, why would he deny you something? So kind of a subtle under, undercurrent there. He's kind of like questioning God's goodness there. So first thing he does is that he sows that little bit of doubt. Secondly, we see in verses 2 and 3, that next step is he engages Eve in this conversation. So they have this conversation going on, and it's interesting, and I know you went over this probably in your groups, when Eve responds, she misquotes God. And you can go back up to chapter 2 in verses 16 and 17, which is where God actually told them about the tree and stuff. And you compare to what Eve says, and it's, there's three things that she did actually. She left something out. I don't know if you picked that up. She left something out because God had said, of every tree in the garden you may freely eat. And Eve just said, we may eat the fruit. But she didn't say freely. And you think, well, it's not a big deal. But that, that word talks about God's generosity, God's goodness. You may freely eat. And she says, well, he said we could eat. Okay? So she left something out of God's word. And then she added something to God's word. And that's a real clear one. That's a real obvious one. She says, you shall not eat it nor touch it. So she added something to what God had said. So she left something out. She added something. And then she changed something also. Because God had said, you shall surely die. And she said, lest you die. And you think, well, what's the big deal? When, by saying lest you die, I mean, when you say you shall surely die, that shows the severity of the consequences. It shows the severity. So she's just kind of lessening the consequences there. And so she's in, the serpent's engaging her in this conversation. And during that time, like we said, she's misquoting God all over, all over the place there. Next, what do we see? We see in verse 4 and 5 that Satan outrightly lies. He contradicts God's word and he promises something he can't deliver. Isn't that the truth? Isn't that what he always does? So he, he lies, he contradicts God's word, and he promises something that he cannot deliver. What was the lie that he said? He said, you shall not surely die. Right? He said, you shall not surely die. It was just a, a direct, outright lie. God said, you shall surely die. You will not surely die. So at this point, all of a sudden, Eve has a decision to make. She has to decide now who she's going to believe. Because those are totally opposite things. You're going to die. You're not going to die. And so she has a choice at that point to make. So Satan gives a lie. And not only that, as I said, he gives a false promise. He said to her, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, Adam and Eve were already made in the image of God. But when he's saying this to them, it's kind of like giving them an either, even greater privilege. In a way, it's kind of like saying, you know, Eve, instead of God telling you what's right or wrong, you can decide for yourself what's right or wrong. So you will know what's right or wrong. Because that's what God would do is he would guide and direct them. So he's promising something that he can't keep. You will be like God. And he comes out with that outright lie. And what do we see after that in verse 6? Next thing that happens he appeals to Eve's senses. 
And if you look at verse 6, look at all the words that are used. It says, it was good for food, pleasant to the eyes, a tree desirable to make one wise. These are words that all appeal to us. And so she sat there and she contemplated what the serpent said. Now, maybe before that time, she hadn't given a whole lot of thought to that certain tree in the middle of the garden. But it's kind of like now that he's mentioned that, let me check this tree out. Or, wow, look at that tree. I hadn't quite noticed it that beautiful before. Look at the sun coming through the branches, right? Whatever it is, there's something about it. We all, it happens to all of us, right? The sign says wet paint. Really? <laughs> right? You know, those things, something all of a sudden draws our attention to something maybe that was there before. But she's seeing it now in a different way. Said that it was good for food so that those bodily appetites are tempted. It was pleasant to the eyes. It appeals to, to our senses. And it was desirable to make one wise. That whole spiritual temptation to go beyond those normal experiences of men and to taste that wisdom that only belongs to God, that spiritual temptation. And what was the result of all that? It says, she took of the fruit and she ate. And she also gave to her husband with her and he ate. Now, maybe Adam had been there the whole time or maybe he just arrived on the scene. But either way, he also ate freely, even willingly when, when Eve gave, gave him the fruit. Now, maybe it was because nothing happened to Eve. Okay, honey, you go first. You know? <laughs> maybe it was because nothing happened to her that he ate or maybe it was because something did happen to her. But he loved her so much that whatever it was, we're going to be in this together. We don't know. But she, he also freely took of that. So she didn't twist his arm. She, offered, you know, she gave it to him, and he also ate. And so those are those, those steps in that deception, that doubt that was sowed, that conversation, then the lies that came out, and then how she sat there and contemplated on what, what Satan was who offered, what it was that he had offered. And you think, even up to this point, what a tragic story. And we haven't even looked at the consequences yet. But what a tragic story, even to this point. But I was thinking about it. And what would make it even more tragic would be if we failed to learn something from it. right? Then it would even be even more tragic. But we need to learn from Eve's mistakes. Because Satan continues deceiving women today. right? So let's look and see what we can learn about her mistakes so that we don't become his next victim when we walk out of here. right? There's a book called Lies Women Believe and the Truth That Sets Them Free by a woman named Nancy Lee DeMoss. And she summarizes the events in Genesis chapter 3 in just a real concise way. And, and she talks about how the same things happen to all of us. I mean, we're, we follow Eve's example. But the way she, she says it, she goes, first you listen to the lie, you dwell on the lie, you believe the lie, and then you act on the lie. And that's what she did. She listened to it. She dwelled on it. She believed it. And as soon as you start believing a lie, sooner or later you're going to act on it, right? And that's what Eve did, and it happens to us. But we don't have to. The thing is, we don't have to give in to those deceptions, to those temptations that Satan presents to us. So here are some things that we can do then as children of God to keep from falling into those same traps. So I'm going to go back through and look at those things that happen and look at how we can avoid them. So the first thing that happened is that Satan sowed doubt. He caused Eve to doubt. Remember, he didn't deny that God said something. He just caused Eve to question what it is that God had said. And Satan does that with us today. How do we, so the question for us is, how do we know if what it is that we're hearing is a lie or if it's true? Because sometimes you, we wonder, we wonder, okay, Lord, is that you? Right? Is, it, is this the truth or is this not you, Lord? And the way that we're going to know is we have to compare it to the scriptures. We have to compare it to the word of God. For example, 
let's say your boyfriend just broke up with you or maybe your husband walked out on you. And so you're sitting there alone and you begin to hear this little voice that's saying, you're worthless. If he didn't love you, what makes you think that God does? Right? Or maybe you fall into sin again. And each and every time that you cry out to God and you promise God that it won't happen, it happens. And you just did. And so you're sitting there, you feel helpless, you feel worthless, you feel like a failure. And then you start thinking, well, God can't forgive me. Is this one time too many? Or maybe you're seeking to follow the Lord and so you have your Bible and you read the promises that are in God's word and you want to believe them, but then the people around you, maybe your friends, your family, your coworkers, they say that those promises aren't for you. You can't trust what God said. Look at the situation you're in. You're a Christian. God's word doesn't work for you. And so these are the things that, that happen to us. We, start, we have to decide, okay, what am I going to believe? What's the truth and what's going to be the lie here that Satan is, is throwing at me? So what does God's word say in response to these different situations? Well, we know in John 3.16 it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. So in those times when we feel unloved, God sacrificed his son for us. He loves us. He loves you regardless of the situation you find yourself in. What about that time when we fall into that sin again and again, right? In 1 John 1, 9, it says, If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us. Psalm 103, 12 says, As far as the east is from the west, so far he's removed our transgressions from us. It's not like one too many times. If I come to God and repent, the Lord will forgive me. As soon as, when I repent, he, his word promises that that forgiveness will be there for me. Or that situation about God's promises, can we depend on those promises? It says in Psalm 118, better, better it is to trust in the Lord than to put your confidence in man. And we all know that. People fail us. People fail us all the time. Even doing their best, they fail us. But we can put our confidence in God. Isaiah 26, 4 says, trust in the Lord forever, for in the Lord Yahweh is everlasting strength. He will not fail you. His promises are true. What he says in his word is true. You can hold that. You don't have to doubt that. So when we doubt God's word and we doubt who God is, we're opening the door for Satan to come into our minds and for him to come in and start doing that destructive work. So we have to be able to distinguish between what's true and what's a lie. And the way that we do that is by knowing God's word. Jesus said in John seventeen seventeen, sanctify them by your truth. He's talking to the Father. He's praying, sanctify them, Father, by your truth. Your word is truth. God's word is true. That's how we distinguish between that lie and what is true. And in those moments, we find ourselves beginning to doubt. We can pray, as it says in, in Mark chapter 9, Lord, help my unbelief. Lord, I want to believe. Lord, help my unbelief. And he will. He will. So we have to know God's word. We have to be able to to know his words so we can identify the truth and so we don't fall prey to the doubt that Satan wants to sow into our lives. So that's one thing we can do is to not give place to that doubt. We need to know God's word. Secondly, what does Satan do? Remember, he began to engage Eve in this conversation. The book of Proverbs admonishes us not to answer a fool in his folly. And we all do that. We'll walk away from people sometimes who just want to like you know have this dumb argument or something. But yet, it makes, me, it makes me think, routinely, though, we'll engage Satan in these conversations. And they aren't actual, maybe, verbal conversations like Eve's was. But these conversations happen in our mind. And you know what I'm talking about. 
And Satan knows that if he can control your mind, he can control you. If he can control your mind, he can control you. Warren Wearsby in his book, The Strategy of Satan, says, Why would Satan want to attack your mind? Because your mind is the part of the image of God where God communicates with you and reveals his will to you. That's why your mind is important. That's where God reveals his will to you. So if Satan can mess with your mind, then you won't be able to know the will of God for your life. Right? And that's what Satan's plan is. He wants to bring as many people to hell with himself as he can. As he, can. he wants to take people away from God's plan. So if he can mess with your mind, then you will not be able to understand God's will and God's plan for your life. So when Satan begins to speak to you, he begins to speak to me and plant those ideas in our mind, you don't need to listen to him as Eve did. And, and certainly we don't need to sit there and answer him back, right? As says, as Eve is, have this conversation with him. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, in verses 3 through 5, the apostle Paul says, you know, though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. That's what we need to do with our thoughts. When my mind starts wandering and I start hearing those things, I start entertaining those ideas, I need to bring those thoughts captive, not let them wander. I control what I think about. And I think James says it best when he says, resist the devil and what? He will flee from you. If I engage him in a conversation, is he going to flee? No. He's going to sit there and keep chatting with me, right? But we resist the devil and he will flee. And so the battle a lot of times is for our mind. And so what does the Apostle Paul tell us? What should we fill our mind with? He says in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 8, he says, Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, which are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there's any virtue or if there's anything praiseworthy, then meditate on these things. These are the things we need to fill our minds with. Now, as Eve spoke with Satan, she misquoted God. Remember, she left something out. She added something and she changed what God had said. And so as we learn God's word and we use God's word, we have to be careful, though, that we're not taking something out of context in order to support our own ideas. God's word is true. That's what's going to help me learn the difference between what's true and what's a lie. But I can't just grab a verse out of nowhere and just use it for a situation that I'm in. So be sure that that doesn't happen. So we want to keep our thoughts in captivity. We can't let our thoughts just run wild. We have to keep them um, in, bring them into that obedience according to God's word. And that's another way that we can resist that, that temptation, that deception that Satan brings. So one thing we said is don't let Satan sow the doubt. We need to keep our thoughts under control. Don't let them wander all over the place. What else was it that Satan did when he um, deceived E? He told a lie. Right? He told a lie and he contradicted God's word and he promised something then that he could not deliver. And you know, when Satan comes and lies to us, just like he came and lied to Eve, we also have to make a choice. And we need to decide who we're going to believe, if we're going to believe God or if we're going to believe Satan. Numbers chapter 23 and verse 19, Moses writes, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not make it good? God is not a man that he should lie. So we wonder, okay, God says something, Satan says something. Who am I going to believe? God's not a liar. On the contrary, though, we know that even Jesus himself, in John chapter 8, in verse 44, speaking about Satan, what did Jesus say? 
He was a murderer from the beginning, and he does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, when Satan speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he's a liar and the father of it. Huh, let me think, who am I going to believe? The father of lies, when he comes and talks to me, or God who cannot lie, right? And Satan constantly lies to us. He lies to us all the time. A lot of times his message comes from the world that's around us. Things like, buy this or do this and you'll be happy, right? And we, we chuckle and it sounds silly, but we fall for it all the time, don't we? Dress a certain way and you'll be popular. Get into this relationship and you'll be happy, you won't be lonely. I mean, those are his lies. Just because they don't come from a serpent or come from the guy in the red PJs doesn't mean it's not from Satan. You know what I'm saying? The world around us is under his control, under his dominion. Another one of his lies is that you can disobey God and not suffer any consequences. Or the consequences will be a lot less, right? They won't be as bad as it sounds. And I think that's probably one of the most devastating lies. That's kind of like what he told Eve, remember? He said, you'll be like God. But what did God say? No, you're surely, you will surely die, right? So Satan gets us to, has us to try to believe that we can disobey God and it's not a big deal. So you can date that non-believer. You can marry that non-believer. And nothing's really going to happen. I mean, come on. He said he'll go to church with you. Right? And, and what do we do? We just like, yeah. We believe these things. Or you can handle that. You know, that, those drugs or that alcohol or being alone with your boyfriend. Whatever that thing is. You can handle it. You've done it before. You're strong. Nothing happened. Those are lies. Those are lies that come from Satan. But like, and that whole idea that you can do these things and there aren't going to be consequences or the consequences won't be as bad as it sounds, right? There was a Puritan pastor named Thomas Brooks and he wrote, Satan promises the best but pays with the worst. He promises honor and pays with disgrace. He promises pleasure and pays with pain. He promises profit and pays with loss. He promises life and pays with death. Isn't that the truth? He cannot deliver. He promises everything but he cannot deliver so we can't believe those lies of satan ladies because he can't deliver what he promises to us so we don't want to have that doubt in our minds we don't want to um, give in to those lies of satan and how was the other thing that happened at the end of that temptation remember how satan appealed to eve's senses right he appealed to her senses now man alone among god's creation man alone can show appreciation for the beauties of nature one of the commentaries I was looking at made me chuckle because it says, when did we ever see a dog admiring a sunset? Or a, no, seriously, or a horse standing breathless before the rugged grandeur of a mountain range? Doesn't happen, right? But only people, we can, we can appreciate the beauties of nature. God gave us senses to be able to appreciate his creation. But Satan can take something that's perfectly legitimate and he can take it and pervert it and twist it, right, for his own doings. <clears throat> In 1 John chapter 2, in verses 15 and 16, John writes and says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, it's not from the Father, but it's of the world. And this is what happened to Eve. Remember, she saw it was good for food. It was pleasant to her eyes. It was desirable to make one wise. She fell into that trap. Through her senses. Psalm 119.37, the psalmist says, Turn away my eyes from looking at worthless things and revive me in your words. And so we have to ask ourselves, what are those things that I'm looking at? I mean, our eyes are very powerful. It's, 
And God gave us those senses. But what do I let to get into my mind, into my heart? Jesus said that the, the lamp of the body is the eye. That's what lights our soul up, is what comes in. So if therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that's in you is darkness, then how great is that darkness? If I let darkness enter in when light's supposed to be coming in, then I'm deceiving myself. Instead of being full of light, I'm full of darkness. In Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul writes, starting with verse 5, he said, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God. It's not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can it be. And so then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if the Spirit of God dwells in you. So we don't want to get into the lusts of our flesh. We don't want to be swayed by the things that we see. And this is Eve's deception. That's what happened to her. But those are some ways that we can keep from falling into those same traps that she herself fell into. Not allowing Satan to sow that doubt, to know the difference of the truth of God's word so we don't believe the lie. And then not allowing ourselves to be carried away by our senses. The end of chapter 3 then deals with different consequences. And I don't know what Eve thought would happen, but I'm sure that she didn't expect to set off this chain of events that was going to reverberate you know, throughout, of his, throughout history there. The results that God promised, they came immediately. But what about what Satan promised? It never materialized, right? Like we said, he promises things that he can't deliver. I'm not going to read the verses, but I want to um, go through and look at some of those consequences here. And one of the first consequences we see in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 7 is the shame Right? Their innocence was gone. In its place, there was guilt and there was shame. And there was an immediate change in Adam and Eve's, in their relationship with each other, and also in their relationship with God, right? So they sought to cover their nakedness. As soon as they heard the Lord coming, what did they do? They ran and they hid. So not only did they have shame, but their fellowship with God was broken. That was another consequence. Their fellowship with God was broken. Because now their hearts were filled with shame, and so they fled from God. And he came looking for them and I thought it was interesting. He didn't come with an accusation. He just came with a question. What does he ask Adam? Where are you? Right? And Adam was keenly aware of the effects of his sin. He knew he was naked. But it's interesting because he didn't quite get what I don't think happened. Because he blames the wrong thing. He goes, I was afraid because I was naked. It's like, no, you were afraid. Not, it wasn't because he was naked. But because he had violated God's word. Right? And so God points that out to him by kind of taking him through it there. And he says, have you eaten of the tree, which I command that you shouldn't? It's kind of like Adam think like, this is what happened. There's a connection here. Right. And then we know what happened, how Adam, first of all, he blamed he's, you know, the woman, and then he did admit he did it. And then Eve following his example, did the same thing. She blamed the serpent and then she admitted it. So they both eventually fessed up to it. Now, when God said to, to Eve, he said, what is this you have done? In the Hebrew, it's actually written a lot stronger. It's more like, why have you done this? Looking at her like that. So she admitted that she was beguiled or deceived, that the serpent had deceived her, and then she had um, eaten. So God begins to pass the judgment, like in a courtroom, a judge there, and it, that was a sentencing now. They were been found guilty, so these are the consequences. And we know um, the first one went to the, to the serpent itself, the physical animal where God's saying that's going to be on its belly. But then God also judges Satan. And he says, I will put, in verse 15 of chapter 3, I will put enmity between you and the woman, 
between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise your head and you will bruise his heel. And we know that when it says to bruise your head, that talks about that, that ultimate destruction of Satan at that second coming of Christ. But then it says that Satan is going to bruise his heel. And it talks about the first coming because that's when Satan thought he had that victory over Jesus. Right on the cross, he was like at that temporary, he thought he had, had that victory, but it was not a, a mortal wound like we know that Christ through his resurrection was able to be victorious there. There are consequences for Eve also for her disobedience, right? The pain at childbirth. And also that marital strife, that relationship that God had ordained with Adam as, it, as its head, that, that family relationship, that marital relationship, instead of being a source of blessing, now it was going to become a source of, of trial and woe for Eve. And Adam's punishment, we know what, the ground was cursed for his sake, and that he was also, God confirmed his mortality because God said that physical, one day, physical death will take its toll one day when he said, you, and death to dust you will return. So it's confirming that one day that, that their lives had now become mortal. And what else we see here is that the paradise is lost. But I thought it was interesting. They lost the paradise, but God didn't destroy the paradise. God sent them out of the garden, but God didn't destroy it. And so it's almost like giving them a little glimmer of hope that one day they might once again be able to walk in that, in that, in that garden and have that fellowship with their creator. Because God just didn't like wipe it out. But he, he took them out of the garden there. Now, there were a couple other things in this chapter. They weren't necessarily consequences, but just to finish off the chapter here, we know in verse 20 that Eve was given a new name. And it just kind of hit me. I thought this was really silly. But, you know, we keep talking about Eve, Eve, Eve. But she wasn't even called Eve until after the, after the fall. You notice that, right? She didn't even have a name. She wasn't called Eve until verse 20. The whole time she was the woman, the woman, the woman. So, and, you know, and so I, I, we always talk about Eve. Well, you know, I should have in my study been saying, well, the woman did this, the woman did that because she wasn't Eve yet. But anyways, but and I just, it kind of hit me. It's like, wait, she's not, now she's Eve, you know? So anyways, but the name Eve, it means the mother of, of, um, like the mother of all living or life giver. And it's kind of neat because some people think it's kind of a connection. You know how God had given that prophecy that, that in Genesis three fifteen about the, the seed of the woman. So even in spite of all the problems that they had incurred here, that there was going to be life afterwards. There was going to be hope. And so the name of Eve was given to her. And we know also in verse 21 that God had um, provided those the um, animal skins for them. And it wasn't out of a fashion statement or anything like that. But it was um, to show, just I think part of it was to show just how devastating sin was. I mean, if you think about it, in Eden, there in paradise, blood was shed for the very first time. No blood had been shed to that point. In God's creation. But there in the paradise, blood was shed for the first time in history. And imagine the horror of Adam and Eve watching this. These creatures taken, God killing these creatures and transforming their, their skins into their clothes. And just the impression that that made on them of just um, what happens, what sin does to us. And what a vivid picture for us of the sacrifice of Christ that would one day provide atonement for all of us. But just, I mean, the impact that that must have made on them had just been tremendous. Because those things, they had never seen that kind of stuff before. And so we go through chapter 2 and 3, we, we see Eve here, and we know that she was known as the woman who yielded to temptation. And I think, what a sad, what a sad um, way to go down in history, right? I mean, century after century, by the whole human race, she's blamed for sin entering into the world, right? She's the butt of jokes, she's mocked, she's cursed, she's reviled. And I thought, how sad, what a depressing legacy, you know, to have, to be known for that. And as I said earlier, we're her daughters, like it or not, right? We are her daughters. And there's no denying that she blew it. 
But then the question is, what about us, right? What are we going to do? Because each day we're faced with a choice of either believing God or and obeying him or what? Believing that lie that Satan puts out there and obeying him. And maybe you're thinking, well, the stakes aren't as high, right, as they were for Eve. It's not like my disobedience is going to take down the whole human race. But if you think about it, we need to remember that our decisions for both obedience or for disobedience, those decisions not only affect us, but they have a huge impact on the people around us. My family either reaps the benefits when I obey God and walk in his ways, or they pay the price when I follow Satan's lies and live according to the desires of my flesh, right? My coworkers, my classmates, even people I don't know who are watching my life, they're either blessed by my words and my actions when I yield to the Holy Spirit, or they're turned off to the message of the gospel when they see my hypocrisy and my self-serving attitude. And more than anyone else, I'm the one who's blessed. I'm the one who receives the benefit when I walk in obedience to God's word, or I'm the one who reaps those consequences when I yield to the temptation and I buy into those lies of Satan. So I want to read one more time that verse I read in the beginning from um, James, where it says, Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires and enticed. And then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, brings forth death. So we can't blame Satan, ladies. We can't blame the kids. We can't blame the dog. We can't blame anyone except ourselves when we give into temptation, right? Because we have God's word. We have his armor, as you read about in, in your homework in Ephesians chapter 6. We have his Holy Spirit indwelling us. And more important. We have Jesus in heaven making intercession for us at this very moment at the right hand of the Father. Jesus is praying for us. So what else do we need? We have everything here. The last thing we need is we need a heart then that's going to be sold out. A heart that's committed to walking in obedience to God. That's what we need. In John chapter 14, Jesus said, If you love me, keep my commandments. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me, will be loved by my father and I will love him and I will manifest myself to him. And that's my prayer for you tonight. That's the prayer of our women's ministry for all of you throughout this whole year. So that as we learn about these women in the Old Testament, as we take what we learn and as we apply it to our lives, that our love for God will be evident, that our love for God will be seen as we walk in obedience to his word. And that as you obey God, just as Jesus said right here, he said he would manifest himself to you in a new and a powerful way in a way that you can give him honor and glory. And that's our desire this year as we go through and look at his word. Please bow your heads with me as we close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the example of Eve, Lord. And I ask that each of us, Father, when we face those temptations, when we're faced with that lie, when we have to choose, Lord, to be obedient to you or to walk in disobedience, I ask that your Holy Spirit would bring that conviction to our hearts, Lord. You would open our understanding to to see the traps that Satan sets for us, Lord. That we would stand up, Father, and in faith take the step of obedience always, Lord Jesus. And Father, when we fail, Lord, because we will fail. Not that we try to, Lord, but we will fail. I pray, Lord, that each and every one of us would come to you humbly in confession, Lord. That we would not be um, driven away from you, Lord, by shame. But rather, we would come to you as, as our loving Father, knowing, Father, that, that you have made that provision through the sacrifice of Christ. for.